It's a wonderful day here in Kansas City. Anne and myself are privileged to be interviewing John Stanley all the way from Australia. Once more, yes. Once more. Thanks for coming to our neck of the woods this time, John. Yes, so your new book is out, John, and this is fascinating. You and your wife wrote this book on food tourism. It just came out, when did you say? The book came out in uh, January. Well, Yeah, we are, but I I want to interrupt here and ask a quick question. You see, John moved from the outback of Perth to the extraordinary outback of Western Australia, so he's now 20 kilometres away from any civilization. I find it amazing that he can produce all this food in the middle of nowhere. But it's not quite true, is it? John, you tend to travel a lot. So how about telling us a little bit about your sort of average month and then how this came about? Good day. Yeah, great to be online again and talking to you. Uh, we actually, as a, Linda and myself, live in Nanup. Nanup is a three and a half hour drive south of uh, Perth. Uh, it's a fascinating part of the world. We're eight miles down a dirt track. Our closest neighbours are 60 kangaroos. We live in an area which is one of the areas of the world that grows more different types of fruit and vegetable than many other parts of the world. So it's a highly rich area as far as range is concerned. We have a thousand tree sweet chestnut farm. And it's the biggest sweet chestnut farm in the, the south of, or in the west of Australia. And there's something that fascinates me about chestnuts, that um, every chestnut, sweet chestnut, that is grown in uh, Australia is sent to China to be peeled to come back to Australia. So the first thing we did was to buy a peeling machine. So we have the only peeled chestnuts that don't go to China. So that's part of my life, is, is uh, the sweet chestnut farm and developing a sweet chestnut farm, and looking at how you add value to sweet chestnuts. The other half of my life is I'm working in 35 countries as a, a conference speaker and consultant to the horticulture and uh, food industry. I'm in Kansas because uh, this week I've been working with the pet food industry. And the pet food conference for um, this part of the world was in Kansas and I was speaking about how to market pet food uh, more effectively in the marketplace. So uh, this month I go from Kansas back to Perth and in five days time I'm in Milan uh, doing some work with a company in Milan. Then it's back to uh, catch up with the sweet chestnuts. And so how did Food Tourism Book take root, so as to speak? Food Tourism Book started because of me looking at what was happening, the second fastest growing tourism activity is garden tourism. And if you remember, we talked to Richard Benfield a few weeks ago or a few months ago about garden tourism. That is the the second fastest growing activity. The first fastest growing activity is food tourism. Richard was the one that, uh, if you like, uh, encouraged me to write a companion book to his book, Garden Tourism. So we produced food tourism because there's a huge need for people to connect to agriculture. And food tourism is that vehicle of connection. So the aim of the book is to say, this is what it's all about, and this is a practical tool to help you develop the market. How do you you see that market in, say, five years' time? Food uh, will obviously be there. What we're seeing is a diversification in the food industry. We've got people that just want to buy fast food, cheap food, and we've got that end of the market. What I call long-chain food supply system, where farmers are finding it very, very difficult to make a profit. 
but consumers are buying cheap through through that avenue. The other avenue is where farmers are adding value to an experience, and that is a growth sector. I wouldn't want to be stuck in the middle, but I'm interested in the short chain from two reasons. One is helping the farm community add value. Another is how to educate the consumer in the value of food. Most people don't understand how food is grown and produced. And food tourism is a vehicle to connect the community with the producer. At present, what we've got is, the, is the, the hero is the chef at present. So we've got celebrity chefs. And I'm not criticising celebrity chefs. They're doing a great job. It's the celebrity chef when it should actually be the producer as well that is the celebrity. We need to make farmers heroes. And if we make farmers heroes, people will connect to food a lot more than they are at present. You know, it's interesting because when I looked at the title of your book, Food Tourism, a practical marketing guide. You know, I, I immediately thought you were going to talk about different restaurants in different parts of the world, or and that's not at all. Your first three chapters are about the farm, yeah, on the farm, off the farm, and agriculture, entertainment, or agritourism. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, if you look at what's uh, happened, and I'm not criticizing it, it's it's yeah, people have started looking at restaurants globally as the core to food tourism, but it's a very very small part of food tourism. The industry. The restaurant industry has done an exceptionally good job at promoting itself. The farm community in comparison has not done a very good job at promoting itself. And we've got to go from farmer to plate. And we went to a restaurant in Kansas uh, yesterday. Alas, it was closed. But we talked to the, the team there and they are taking the food directly from the farm to the restaurant, uh, taking out the middle people. And we've got to streamline them. It's about short chain and making it a short chain. If it's a short chain, everybody's more profitable. But the restaurant is only a small part of it. We've got to get people into the community, into the agricultural community around their cities, connecting. Now, that could be through farmer's markets. It could be through pick your own. It could be agritourism. It could be farm trails. It could be culinary trails. There's so many different aspects of food tourism. It's not just about restaurants. It's about a complete experience based around the food. That reminds me of that restaurant in Kansas. It's like a castle. The chef uh, gathers all the food locally. It comes in and then she prepares the food on a week-by-week basis. I think the important thing we've got to get across is seasonality is becoming more and more important. And if you want to stay healthy, the research came out two weeks ago in Australia, if you eat seasonal food, your food bill is 25% cheaper than if you have global food. But also, you live longer. In other words, you're healthier if you eat seasonal food. That's what Nelly said. Yeah, that's something my daughter keeps talking about. Um, because there's reasons why it's in season at that particular time. It meets your body's needs yeah. for at that particular time. Yeah. For either, you know, the climate, you know, the, or the kind of jobs you're going to be doing, whatever it is, your activity level, it's all reflected that's available and at that time. And the temperatures. And the temperatures. And the light levels uh-huh. and everything else. Right. Yeah. And, yeah, we, we may say a large percentage of the population is looking for cheap food, drifting towards specific types of supermarkets who exactly are doing the opposite to what they should. They're not providing seasonal food. They're they're providing global food. If we can educate the consumer to buy from the farm market, they're going to have a cheaper food bill. The farmer will make more money because of the shorter chain, and they're going to be healthier and live longer. It's a win for everybody. 
That makes absolute sense. It does make sense. The interest to me is this, that everywhere is, uh, because of climate, it's it's going to be different in every region. And, And so how that gets balanced out, because most of the food seems to be being produced by big ag in one area, and shipped everywhere, so you're losing the nutrients as well. That's going to be quite a sea change. Um, well, you say lose the nutrients. Uh, a lot of big ag um, has to try and reintroduce nutrients. And uh, smaller farmers farming, let's say, more correctly, are often providing a more nutritious product than the big end of agriculture uh, because it's a mass production area and it's not about the quality of nutrition. It's about volume of product. And taste is never mentioned. Mm. That's true. John, as you've done the research for this book, what particular are there particular farms, agricultural centres that come to your mind that are actually really doing a good job at this? I think there are regions doing a great job. Ontario is doing a great job in Canada. British Columbia is doing an excellent job. I would like to think the southwest of Australia is doing a great job. And when you say excellent job, you mean that they are getting people to becoming more involved in the, you know, the, the bakeries, the, the pick-your-own, the, you know, farmer's markets. Is that what you mean by being successful? Yes, but it's been driven by the farm community. So farmers are cooperating strongly about producing local healthy food, and that automatically starts drifting into tourism. So there are regions of the world that excel. I think Ontario is, is, by, is by far one of the global leaders. So can we define a little bit closer the farmer? Because in, in England you have a smallholder that's probably a, uh, up to about five acres, and he could be defined as a farmer in this situation. And, and here you've got people with hundreds of acres, but obviously they're not farming in an organic way necessarily. So is, have, is there a sort of a cut-off point or is it is there an efficiency level or is it just a we should be calling them growers and farmers it's two types of farming one is a monoculture system uh, that is long food chain and global then there is i don't think it's about acreage i think it's about uh, thinking process and if you look at the long food chain the figures are in the book, and I'm just thinking they used to make 38 cents in the dollar and now make 6 cents in the dollar on wheat or milk or whatever it is. So the, vol- the profit has gone down on the long food chain. So they have to keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and becoming more mechanised. That is one system. Uh, and the world needs that system uh, to feed the world in certain aspects. But the, the other one is the short food chain. And I don't think it's about acreage. I think you can see someone that's got an act one acre and could be in bees. That's still a farmer. So yeah, we've got 70 acres of chestnuts. I would say yeah, we're still in the boutique end of the market. It's it's about adding value to the experience and the product that's important. You need the diversity of farmers. We've got to remember that in most situations, 25% of food in, from cities, city areas, comes from 2% of the farmland of the area, and that's around the city. So if you take, um, say again, how, so if, let's say Kansas as an example, right. 25% of the food in a healthy city is grown around the edge Lovely. and it only takes okay. 2% of the land. Wow. So most diverse agriculture is around the cities. Now one of the big threats that we've got, and there's some great studies on Calgary, uh, on Melbourne, etc., as we expand our cities, 
we're going to have problems within 10 to 20 years because we're taking away the richness of the agriculture around our cities. We're actually building houses on great soil. But we, we were listening to um, someone explain to us um, not that long ago that soil wasn't necessarily the best medium to grow food in and it would be better to use a um, more of a composted peat and, say, vermiculite uh, basis to get a higher production rate. And you could supplement that and keep going quite easily. In fact, we found someone in uh, California who was growing on, on $100,000 worth of produce on one acre a year, which obviously is fairly intense, but he wasn't using any chemicals or anything like that. And I'm, I'm just wondering if things like aquaponics and hydroponics and growing in artificial mediums is going to help us? Well, there's two, two angles here. One is that we, we, yes, we should intensively grow through a, a media system. That is one end. The other one is, I'm a great fan of Joe Salatin out of Connecticut. If you ask my wife, what are you growing? We're growing soil. Joe grows soil. If you, get, if you grow soil, you can grow anything. Exactly. Now, I live in a country where when you know, Europeans landed, the soil was 60% organic. Now it is less than 1% organic. Why? Because our farming techniques have destroyed the soil. You're seeing the same happen in the Midwest of the USA. Very much so. We, there's two angles. Yes, we should be cultivating composting systems for very intensive, but we've got to start growing soil. Because if we don't grow soil, what are we going to do 20, 30, 40 years down the road? So we don't grow chestnuts, we grow soil. And if we grow soil, chestnuts will grow healthier. Whether it's a chestnut or asparagus or a cabbage is irrelevant. We've got to start growing soil as a thinking process. Now the problem we've got is a lot of the soils we've got are on the peripheries of cities where we, are growing the, we have been growing the richness of food. But now we drove around yesterday and saw what I call McMansions as an Australian taking up that soil. Well, we should be growing soil. There's a debate. That's an interesting fact, actually, isn't it? Because then it moves into uh, uh, agricultural techniques of no-till, and it moves into drainage and uh, all sorts of water runoffs and, and all sorts of things that are going completely yep. wrong. Yep. And somebody that's well worth having on the programme sometimes is Joel Salatin. Uh, he's very forward-thinking. He's out there. He's got some interesting views and when you actually believe in his thinking process that you grow soil. That's fascinating. We need to get John with Bill. Can you imagine? Oh my word. I notice you have a small chapter, it seems small, about the garden center. I got, I'm curious, how do you see garden centers? Ah. What's their role in futurism? Well, I think you're going to do another session with me and uh, Sid that's going to be on the on garden centres, and we'll stir that issue up at that point. Okay, so we'll but leave that one But let me just follow that one through at this point, is that garden centres are inedible tourism. Most of our consumers are now saying they want to grow food. And you go to a garden centre now for an experience to buy edibles. Well, that's tourism. And I think the important issue here is what is retailing and what is tourism? Are Whole Foods a retailer or are they a tourism destination? That is the challenge. You can go to a food school at Whole Foods. Is that shopping or is that tourism? And the book asks those questions. 
we've got retailers moving into tourism Whoa. and you know, tourism moving into retail. It's have, blending. Have you seen natural grocers and they, what they do? They have a nutritionist in, yeah. in the store. Yeah. In fact, Nelly works yes. there now. Yeah, my it? daughter is uh, yeah, the produce yeah. manager of their stores. So, yeah, as we go more online, are you going to be going on a tourism experience or a shopping experience in the food industry? And I think what we're going to see is you go around the world now and see some of these retailers. I think they're in tourism because you go from experience. It's true. And that's why you keep going back because yeah. they keep changing the experience. Exactly. And they educate you. Yep. Yeah. You know, you get challenged, your mind gets broadened. Yeah. That's fascinating. That means that the big boxes are going to become little boxes. Well, we're already seeing that, aren't we? We are. And, uh, I mean, yes, we're, we're seeing the big box become a little box for different reasons. Uh, and that's, yeah, that's not a food tourism destination. No. But retailers, you, say, you go to the airport now, and whether it's Dubai, whether it's an Australian airport, a Danish airport, there are shops in the airport now selling the local food. Now, if I go back four or five years ago, I don't know why, but they sold clothes. Why they put expensive clothes shops in airports, there was never, I never understood it. Now it's local food. I've got clients as farmers having shops in airports. Now, is that tourism or retailing? People are going on holiday and starting then adventure in the airport with local food. That must be good for all of us. Absolutely. That's awesome. So I always got like, clothing in an airport because if you forgot to pack your socks or you forgot you know, your belt. You're the or, one. Yeah, I had to have I knew they'd done it for somebody. Actually, Just I, in case. I, I, I used to get my shirts because I spilled my coffee from Starbucks because they've got that little <laughs> crease in them. And every time you tip it, it goes, oh, it's a nice shirt. Yeah. But how marvelous to begin yeah. your adventure in a country with local foods yeah. instead of a chain, for exactly. example. Yeah. You know, that so, we would all recognize the name of instead so to see something local. Now we've got it organized. Chris goes in, takes local food, spills it down his shirt, <laughs> and has to buy a new shirt in the airport. <laughs> That's <laughs> adding value. Absolutely. <laughs> That's exactly right. On his way to visit the farm. Yeah. I actually got once, once I got caught in a laundrama in Dover. We'd been on a, an outing with, um, across the channel and come back as a whole group of us and we got soaking wet. So we all took our clothes off and sat in our underpants in this laundromat. <laughs> I'm getting too much information yeah, there. Yeah, me too. <laughs> hey, I'm going to, you know, are you familiar? I'm not going to remember the name of it, but there's this uh, grocery store in Ohio and it's huge, mongous. Jungle Gems, that's it. Because when I went to the IGC, or no, yeah. when I was at something in Ohio, I toured Jungle Gems. Now, yeah. see, that's food Jungle tourism. Jungle Gems is tourism. Yeah, definitely. Jungle Gems is tourism. Because you go in there just to experience yeah. each country. Yeah. And it's quite an adventure, and you could go in there over and over and over yeah. again. Do you I'm, see many places like Jungle Gems around the world? Because I, I think it's pretty unique. I see. The answer to that is yes, I'm seeing more and more. Because I think retailers are beginning to focus on the experience at that end of the market. So, yes, I mean, the, one of the best I know of is actually in South Africa, Johannesburg. And I, yeah, some wonderful food retailers out that are providing the tourism experience. And Jungle Gyms is a lovely example of that. Yeah, it truly is. I mean, when we saw that yesterday, when we 
went to Cabela's. Oh, yeah. And, and, and we went to Nebraska Furniture Mart. Mm. One, you're absolutely overloaded with, mm. and, and it's confusing. Mm. And the other one is just phenomenal. It's right. informational, educational. And, you know, even though I'm not a hunter, it was fascinating, wasn't it? I mean, really, really totally It becomes different. a destination. It does. You know, you enter a, a city like Kansas City, and that would be one of the landmarks that you would want to visit because what it's presenting to you is wildlife in an incredibly fascinating way. It does. It definitely does that. And yeah. combining it with, I mean, I take my grandchildren, yes, any but, little child I'll take. But you have a brother see. that has his own little hunting well, place. And they, I do. They hide down in their little... Sales and cook yeah, food went, for five hours. They were heading they... turkeys last weekend. Oh, they were? They were crossbows? No, but they didn't get any. Oh, turkeys are clever. Yeah, turkeys are clever. Uh, we have turkeys. They keep me highly amused. They're one of the, one of the most intelligent, they funny are. birds I know. Yeah, yeah. turkeys and, and the geese. My brother enjoys. Yeah, he has a lot of wildlife yeah. on his property. But that's, that's an example, I guess. You could take something like a, a Cabela's yeah. and what they've done with that whole industry and made it a destination that's what you can see needing to happen with the whole agricultural industry yep yep oh that's huge I mean that's it's, exciting it's actually. an exciting period to be in yeah food tourism it's an exciting time that's what makes Red Barn Farm so interesting too because that's a destination for sure oh, and, and they have 15,000 school children there a year it's incredible oh. And I think you're bringing that up. I think the important thing with food tourism is, uh, I often talk about the fact we've got a lost generation, but the new generation of children coming through are very much into food, the quality of food, nutrition. Uh, I believe, yeah, I think we've got, we had a lost generation. The Gen X was a lost generation. But the kids coming through now are very much focused on food and nutrition, which is great for society. Absolutely. Well, thank everybody for listening. Hey, John, where, how can our listeners get a hold of your book? Yeah, book can be, caught, be, be obtained through three avenues. One is um, John Stanley Associates uh, through my e-store on my webpage. Another one is through the publisher, which is CABI. And the other one is through Amazon. Amazon, okay. And the name of the book is Food Tourism, A Practical Marketing Guide by John Stanley and Linda Stanley. So, yeah. That uh, a lot of people take advantage of this. Yeah. Thanks for having me uh, talk about food tourism. Thank you very much, John. listening today we really appreciate your support and tuning in on growing trends again make sure to look for us on growingtrends.org for the podcast or we all are are on itunes you can look for us as growing trends there as well look for the blonde and the brit and then you'll know that must be them thanks for man and chris